Hey, Donnie here. I wanted to tell you about Champions 90. Champions 90 isn't a workout routine or a fitness routine. This is about you transforming your life mentally, giving yourself an upgrade while you build to business freedom. Champions 90 is about you getting quiet with your thoughts, staying focused on building your business, and getting you to freedom. Come join the challenge at champions90.com. My goal is really just to get the deal made. And then after that, I want to bring people in and let them execute the deal long-term. I have no desire long-term. And so the problem is, is that you have to have a certain belief in your skill set to go and to try to do that. And when you're successful and do that, you've validated that ego, you know? And so, right. and so that's, so it kind of creates this vicious cycle and it's, I don't look at it and go, well, I'm trying to be egotistical. I look at it going, well, if I'm trying to get this big deal with South Africa pulled off, I have to believe that I can do it. The stakes are, are high. The probability is low. And so you, you have to believe in yourself. guys so this is gonna be a fun episode i'm bringing in ryan and he's coming to talk about his journey of being a young guy who jumped into dad's businesses they found some success along the way but i really enjoyed the business ownership conversation we had i really enjoyed the, his aspect of all the things he's done to work on himself and find success in his life man so enjoy this episode All right, guys, it's going to be another fun episode. It's Donnie Bovine, and today I'm bringing you Ryan Ray, another Texas boy, so it should be a lot of fun. I'm sure at some point I'll get to make fun of him and give him a hard time, so looking forward to this one. So, Ryan, welcome to the show, my friend. Please tell us your story. Well, first off, thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be on the show today, so thank you for that. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about my story, and I think I told you in some of the workup documentation that it's probably a little different than what you're used to, but happy to share it. So I am uh, 33 years old, and I am about to take over a family-owned business engineering firm, and I've been running the day-to-day -day operations for that business since I was 22, so I've been doing that for a little bit of time now, and so in that time period, I got to do a lot of exciting things, a lot of fun things. But, you know, one of the things I think that kind of gets missed in general is we look to people and we say, okay, well, the person's family has a lot of money or the person was set up for success. But actually, I found it to almost be a motivating factor and a hindrance, if you will. Not that my, my dad was hindering me, but the outside perception is that, hey, I feel like I've always had to work a little bit harder to prove myself than maybe someone who came in from the outside and you kind of promoted from within the ranks. You kind of feel like that person's earned it, whereas me, I started at the bottom and had no intentions of doing what I'm doing. It's just I was looking for a job. My dad's like, hey, you can go out there and cut brush in the field, you know. <laughs> so that's where I started at. And I think I've had moderate success since I've been doing it and very excited. And for me, it's really been weird because when I was 22, 23 years old, I would go to uh, work in oil and gas. You go to multi-billion dollar companies, you know, trying to say, hey, you know, hire our hire us. And at the time, our company was named after my dad. So here I was, 23 years old, going to downtown Houston, meeting with people who have been in the business for 30, 40 years. And I'm like, hey, you, know, you need to hire us. You know, I was living in Louisiana at the time. So it sounded like it was, you know, Rodney and his boy working out the back of our house. And so we, <laughs> you know, and these are big players. These are real, these are real projects that are worth millions of dollars. And we're trying to get Obviously, you had the, the credentials to do it, but overcoming that and it creates a lot of doubt, a lot of fear, and you know, it, it makes you kind of question 
how much, you know, people talk about how much you should be concerned with what people perceive you as. But, well, for me, I know what they're perceiving me as. They're perceiving me as my father's son who's probably getting a hand-me-out. And so, you know, I do have to worry about that. I do have to deal with that reality and kind of prove myself through merit. So I felt like despite the fact that business has been moderately successful since I've been in my position, I've also felt like there's these other things I need to go out and do to kind of solidify myself as someone who is capable of running a business and doing the things that I do. Yeah, man, I love this. It's really fun when you get the people on the show that may have come from wealth or they've come from family, generational wealth or those type of things, or they've just come from a family business because there's always that unique dynamic. I mean, I've always been told that generation one builds it, generation two sustains it, generation three loses it all, (laughs) (laughs) especially when you're talking about newer money. But from the outside perspective, you know, you're 22 years old, you're going into work for dad's company which has its own dynamics as, as well. So one, you get amazing props because my dad knows this. There's no way in hell I am ever could work for my father. <laughs> you know, dad's the uh, everything's proper place, time, where it goes. Me, I'm a bull in a china shop. Let's just get it done. Right. You know, so we're two different lifestyles. So good on you for being able to do it. But 22 years old, you're walking into these major, massive oil companies, which in Texas, oil's big business, when it's big business. <laughs> no doubt. But now you're 22 years old, and there is a patriotic order in the oil game. You know, you've got names that mm-hmm. in general everybody knows. Yep. And here you are, 22 years old, basically a farm kid from Louisiana walking into these places, and you're supposed to help, you know, negotiate in portions of million dollar contracts. Yeah. What is that like? I mean, you don't necessarily start out walking into that room full of confidence and everything else. How long did it take for you to feel comfortable in that moment? Right. And let me clear up one thing just so I probably present this wrong. I came to work when I was 19. I didn't start running the business day-to-day till I was 22. So I did start at the very bottom and work up. And so it kind of was a weird deal for us because, as you say, when oil and gas is good, it's really good. And when it's bad, it's really bad. Mm-hmm. And so we were – working on a, one of the largest projects at the time the company had ever had. And I had kind of worked my way up, you know, kind of two slight promotions. And my portion of the project had ended, and I was over in Texas, working over here in Dallas-Fort Worth at the time at the Barnett Shell. And I came back home, was, you know, having lunch with my dad, and he's like, hey, look, there's one more crew working, and when that's done, I'm going to retire. So this has been, you know, whatever, 10, 11 years ago. And me and my wife were newly married. We were living in Dallas-Fort Worth. And I was like, you know, we like it over here. We're not really sure what we want to do. We were pregnant with our first child. And he goes, well, you know, if you want to come back home and give it a run to try to run it, you know, for him it was kind of a, as long as you don't screw it up, there's not a whole lot of risk because he was going to retire. And I said, okay. And so yeah, for, at that point forward, what happened over the next six months was it was very rough because I'm trying to sell, like you're saying, you don't really have that confidence. So I had a lot of rough sales meetings, you know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff. But what I learned through that time period was if I would just listen to what the client was telling me, I, there's a lot of sales books and techniques and not here to brag or bash on any of them. But what I learned was if I go to meet with you and you say, well, our biggest problem is X, Y, and Z. Okay. Well, I'm the one person that you're going to meet with in our company, other than my dad, obviously, who can actually fix this. So if you go to work for a larger competitor, they may have a large hierarchy where they can't get things done. Well, we're a smaller business. So we would – so I learned to adapt our sales strategy directly to the things that the clients were saying they're having problems with from other vendors. And so that's kind of how we worked it. But that, it still was a long process because you got to collect that information. So I had a lot of meetings that were very – me kind of stumbling around trying to figure my way out and – 
about eight months in, we got a call from an old client, and they said, someone I'd kind of talked to a few times, my dad had worked for a lot, and they said, hey, can you be here tomorrow and put on two survey crews? This is like 6 o'clock at night. Getting two survey crews that quick is almost impossible, but we luckily had some that were kind of floating around. I said, yeah, and that turned out to be a mega project for us. We ended up adding, you know, 12 more crews in three months. And, and so then it went from me kind of stammering my way through, not really having any kind of credentials to working on this big mega project. So then when I came out of that, I kind of had done the sales stuff enough to kind of understand what the people were wanting. Then I was kind of baptized by fire working through this crazy Haynesville shell back when Aubrey McClendon was blown and going for Chesapeake, kind of baptized by fire, learned, made a ton of mistakes, obviously. You know, it was a little experience I had, you know, you're going to make mistakes. So when I came through all that, I was probably 23, 24. But that year and a half, the amount of experience, two years, whatever it was, the amount of experience I had gained, I really tried to make sure I learned from that, you know. And so, and then, you know, being a young guy, what I would do is I'd go around and if I was on a project, I'd say, what project are you working on? Okay, well, where'd you come from? And I would just try to associate myself in the oil and gas business. You know, it's like the three, seven degrees from Kevin Bacon. It's the same thing. I'd go out there and they'd say, uh, well, we came from this project. And, I'd, and, you know, usually you'd know someone. Oh, I know someone. So I'd try to associate myself by what we had done, what I had listened to, and then associate myself with people that they would know. So then it was kind of like I was part of the group then because, oh, I know Donnie and Donnie knows Bob. Well, Donnie doesn't know me, but he knows Bob, and he could call Bob if he wants to to vouch for me. So all of a sudden then you kind of become part of the of the culture, if you will. And I really tried to make sure that, I've always kept up with who's where and what's going on because uh, we talk about networking, but that's essential, especially as a young person coming up in the ranks. What I really enjoy about that is I tell everybody, you got to go through it to become it. Yep. Right. And your daddy pretty much looked at you and said, you know, it's, if, if you want to do something with it, cool. If you don't want to do something with it, cool. Right. You know, go figure it out and mm-hmm. you at least put yourself in the game. And I guarantee you're probably being even more modest saying you got, you know, some failures, but I guarantee you got punched in the face verbally on several of those sales meetings starting to figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> and that business is as cutthroat as hell, yeah. you know, yeah. and there's a lot of learning curves in the moment. And it goes back to, you know, if they don't know you, they don't know you, right? Right. You know? And you know, that's a tough game. It's even worse that way in Texas because a lot of Texas businesses done that way, you know, so now you win this massive deal through a phone call and it's scaling and growing your business. How difficult was it really to go from a 19 year old kid that was chopping down brush to climb and getting 22 to now running a multi million dollar crew running? What was that mental shift like? Okay, I can't be an employee. I have to become an owner. Yeah, that was. That was interesting because, you know, so my dad still owns the business of the day and has been a huge help. I can't diminish that, obviously, without his resources and funding. We talked earlier about, hey, well, they think it's easy. Well, that is the easy part when you do have the the backing of a backer, in this case, my dad. It does make it viable to get these things. And so going through that process, I don't want to say it came natural because that's not right, but I always grew up. How I came to work for my dad was this. I wanted to be a football coach my whole life, from like seventh grade on. I had no doubt about it, and I wanted to be the head football coach. I didn't want to be an assistant coach. I didn't want to be the office coordinator. I wanted to be the head coach. So I always wanted to be in a spot to where I was in charge of things. So getting the responsibility wasn't something that I shied away from because it's what I've always wanted. When I decided I don't want to coach you more, I came to work for my dad, and then ended up here. So that wasn't necessarily a problem. The problem was is trying to understand how to manage yourself, your temperament, your ego, 
ego, which is a huge problem when you think you're something and you're 22, you know, you think, <laughs> you, you think you got it figured out, right? Manage other people's expectations. And then the flip side is, you know, it's one thing to go and try to sell someone on your company and they're 50, 60 years old and you're 22. You got to manage people who are 50, 60 years old and you're 22. And that's different <laughs> too, right? Right. And so, you know, you have all these ideas and all these concepts of what will work and what doesn't work. And, you know, you turn on the news and the latest business gurus telling you uh, these four things will make all your problems go away. And, of course, they never do. And so it's a lot of, I think, looking back, a lot of trial and error and a lot of getting it wrong, thinking you have stuff right, getting it wrong. And the other thing was I learned in the midst of all of this was we would have meetings every Tuesday and every Thursday for like eight hours. I'd have to drive an hour or two to the meeting, sit there all day, and then drive back. So my week was basically prep for meeting, meeting, debrief on Wednesday, rebrief, Thursday meeting, and then Friday. That was seriously my week. And what I learned through that was I was actually okay at doing that as long as I did that. But if, if we're getting behind on a project and I had to get in the weeds, man, things would blow up because they'd call me. You know, I'd get emails and phone calls just trying to move pieces around. Well, if I, if I focused on one thing for too long, you know, the world would not, not fall apart, but I just would lose track of what's going on. And so I really realized at that point, hey, if you're going to manage something, you got to understand that you're managing. You can't always you can't always hop in there and do it. It's not about you're better than it or whatnot, but um, you have to figure out, you know, sometimes things are slow enough. You can get in there and do it with the people. And sometimes things are moving so fast that you just have to make sure that you're looking at the 30,000 foot view and figuring out how to move these pieces. Someone has to do that at least. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a couple of points that I think are really cool is one, you know, there are a lot of gurus out there that are constantly trying to tell you the the best whiz bang gizmo gadget out there. And I'll tell everybody, take everything you learn and break it down so it fits you. Sure, that's right. Yeah. And don't take everything as the golden ticket. It's literally an opportunity to try something maybe you haven't tried and see if it's going to fit within your business model, mm-hmm. which a lot of the gurus don't want to hear because they want to sell their whiz-bang gizmo right. gadget, right? It's interesting. I think a lot of people struggle with the management, you know, maneuvering because you know you, you got to be a manager you got to be a supervisor you got to be a trainer and you got to be a coach right mm-hmm. and they'll, all those have different methodologies and thought processes behind them because you can't be the supervisor and then turn around and try and coach somebody it just doesn't work hand in hand because right you're disciplinarian and now you're trying to give an attaboy you know right <laughs> you know so it's a huge learning curve how long do you think you went before you kind of felt comfortable in that seat i mean i know you were owning it moving into it but at what point did you really start feeling mm, i got this yeah, I don't, I mean, it's kind of hard to put a time period on it because, you know, after we had the big project, us and that client parted ways. And, you know, as we kind of joked about before, the oil and gas business up and down. We went through two major downturns since I've been at the company. So you, you in the downturn, you don't feel like you have anything because there's nothing that you can do to change a downturn. It's just a downturn. And so in those moments, I'd be lying if I said, oh, I got this thing figured out. I, I know I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting there going, you know, how, how are we going to fix this? So there's a sense in which you always are, even now, as we're looking ahead to the, to the future, kind of going, okay, well, how do we prevent that? You know, we haven't figured out how to downproof ourselves, if you will. So there's a sense in which we're always kind of, you know, I don't want to say own it in that sense. The other thing I learned along the way was 
I've tried to learn what I'm not good at, which is a lot of things, but like I always use example paperwork. You know, I always make the joke, if I'm talking to people, I can be the best at our company doing paperwork for about two weeks. But then after that, the company would literally go under if it's up to me doing paperwork. <laughs> and so I just don't do paperwork. I have people that help me with it. I have people that do it for me. Whatever I got to do, I really just try not to touch paperwork because I know any length of time is up to me, it's going to fall apart. And so part of what I've tried to incorporate is I have kind of a guy that's my right-hand man. And what I've learned with him is, is he's maybe a little bit more soft-spoken than I am in some regards. And, you know, if I'm kind of fiery and kind of fired up, he can kind of take it down a notch. So if I'm mad at something or frustrated, I can bring him in and kind of unload my feelings, not at him, but on him. You know, you see the difference there? Say, yeah. hey, I'm not mad at you, but just hear me out. And then he can go take and translate that message. Maybe it's a little bit more palatable to someone else or whatever. And so I think for me, that's been the big thing is, is trying to figure out where I'm weak at, where I'm good at, and then really fill those gaps up with people that can help me with those things. And that I think has been part of the ownership process is walking through that. You know, when you're young and dumb, you think you can do it all. And then you realize, you, you know, if you've got any kind of brain, you can realize you can only do so much on any level. And so I kind of understand now these are the things that I'm good at. I like making deals. I like kind of negotiating and wheeling and dealing, if you will. So I, I try to really focus on that. And then I have some people that are really good at managing projects. And I was, that wasn't a problem for me when I did it. It was fine. We did fine enough, but those people are really good at that. I can pass it on to them. And then I have some people that, you know, if I have some HR issues or whatnot, I can go to these people and I can talk to them about it and let them handle it a little bit more diplomatically than maybe. Because when you're kind of the, when you're in the seat, everything, there's more pressure. You know, it's, you, you feel the, you're maybe more concerned about something than your employee is, and, I, and rightfully so. I should be more concerned. That's my job to be concerned. And so kind of having a middle a middle manager, if you will, to kind of help me say, okay, well, this is what I'm concerned about, and uh, bounce things off of. You know? So I, it, it's been a process where I've just tried to really fit in these people to help me with the various things that I'm either not good at or things I just don't want to do, and you know, maybe areas where I need to be smoothed off, they help me smooth off. Well, and I think that's key for anybody running a company is more so know your strengths versus your weaknesses. I mean, the only reason I say that is because too many often people get onto themselves because of their weaknesses. The good owners, the good managers, you know, they're the ones that realize that it's not necessarily a weakness. It's just not a strength. So if it's right. not a strength, I'm going to find somebody else to fix right. that and, and fill that hole. So it's impressive to know that you did a lot of this at such a younger age, figuring a lot of this stuff out you know, going on because I look at myself at 22 years old and I was just out of the Marine Corps and I still had no idea what the hell I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, thank God my best friend and his dad had a company that I could go work for because who knows where I would have ended up, you know, flipping tacos probably. But (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think my dad gets a lot of credit there because it isn't easy to work for family. Uh, I don't think anyone, anyone that says that, I would like to see how they managed it. And so there's definitely been points where, you know, my ego was, you know, out of line and there's no one better to check your ego than your own father. You know? <laughs> well, maybe and your wife, maybe your wife. <laughs> well, you're, well, well, yeah, my wife wasn't working with me, so it's a little bit different. She does check my ego too, but your own father checks it. And there's no one that frustrates you more to check your own ego than your own father. Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> you know, you, you know, he's right, but you don't want to admit it, you know? And so having my dad there has been good because...
Hey guys, it's Donnie here, and I just want to let you know that we've recently launched a content development company, and this company helps people get social content. You know you need to put out a lot of content nowadays to get engagement out there in all your social platforms, but well, we've come up with a really cool way to help you get videos, blog posts, memes, social posters, and infographics for you know, whatever social site you need. So check us out at successchamps.us and learn more about how you can get social content for your social media. Support for this podcast comes from Point Blank Safety Services and Blue Family Fund. Blue Family Fund, helping dependents of law enforcement families on their journeys. Blue Family Fund is a nonprofit that raises funds and offers financial support through higher education scholarships for dependents of law enforcement officers and by providing financial assistance for families of fallen law enforcement officers. Every dollar donated will go to the families of police officers, either through scholarships to dependents of police officers or as aid to fallen officers' families. Visit us at bluefamilyfund.com. You know, I've done so many things that were just so dumb, and sometimes they were, they weren't ill intent, no ill intent at all. I, I wasn't trying to be rude or anything. I just, just you know, just young and dumb. And there's times I've done stuff where, you know, I kind of want to beat my chest. And so kind of having your dad there to bluntly check you or softly check you or however it goes, case by case, has been good because without that, you can kind of run a little bit wild. So having someone that can you know come to you and say, hey, you know, this is this is not good has been has been good for me, definitely. Well, and I think that's good advice for anybody. If you don't have a dad, you better have somebody. I mean, I've got a, a group of guys that I'll sit down with, you know, once a month or so. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's an ego check. I mean, it really is because mm-hmm. I can get in my own way based on the successes I have. I'm mm-hmm. like, yes, I'm on top of the world. I'm doing things. I'm right. Right. And these guys are like, dude, you still walk into a restaurant and nobody knows who the hell you are. Shut That's up. Exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, so you've got to have that balancing act there when you do everything. And I think too many business owners put themselves on an island. You know, they want to sit back and, you know, handle it all, take on all the weight, take on all the responsibility. And, you know, surprisingly, you don't look like you have too many gray hairs, but that's where I think <laughs> a lot of these guys get the gray hairs from. Right. Is they're trying to manage it all and not reaching out to support systems and stuff. Well, but to what you're saying, second go, and I tied in with this is, you know, for me, I, I envision myself. This is the ego coming out now, but yeah. I envision myself as a conqueror, as someone right. who's willing to go into to try to conquer something. If it, if it interests me, if it doesn't, then so be it. But if it interests me, I want to go conquer it. The difference is, once I conquer or I get that ball rolling, I don't want to be the occupying force. You know, so we're working on some deals irrelevant. We're working on some deals and. My goal is really just to get the deal made. And then after that, I want to bring people in and let them execute the deal long term. I have no desire long term. And so the problem is, is that you have to have a certain belief in your skill set to go and to try to do that. And when you're successful and do that, you've validated that ego, you know? And so, and so that's, so it kind of creates this vicious cycle. And it's, I don't look at it and go, well, I'm trying to be egotistical. I look at it and go, well, if I'm trying to get this big deal with South Africa, pull it off. 
I have to believe that I can do it. The stakes are, are high. The probability is low. And so you, you have to believe in yourself. And then when you do it, you're like, oh, well, yeah, I did it. I'm the man. And but, but you're right. You walk in the restaurant and no one knows or even cares if you told them. If you told them you did it, they're like, good for you. I don't care. And so, right. but it's, I think that's the hard part is that you want to be someone, if you're in leadership who, if you're like me, it's kind of like you sounds like you, you want to conquer things, you want to do things. And when you do it, it, it validates that sense of, hey, I can go do this. But then you got to kind of monitor that, got to check that, or you will kind of get, you know, crazy out there yeah, in the ether. Yeah. No, I, it's just funny because I think everybody's got a little ego. Some of us may have a little bit bigger ego than others, but sure. it's wild to watch how people handle it, mm-hmm. you know, because in, in some circles, you know, you're either looked at a one of two ways. You're either looked at the kid that rebuilt dad's company and set it to the stratosphere, or you're looking at the kid that got lucky, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty much the two ways people are, are looking at you and what you've done with the company and successes and things you had. So if the ego gets too big, same thing Bo and I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. You prove that you just got lucky, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right? But keeping mm-hmm. yourself in check along the way says, how about I gently give you the middle finger and <laughs> keep growing this thing, you know? Right. Yeah. And the reality is it's neither. It's that I had a good dad who who believed in me and gave me a shot and helped me along the way. And so that's the reality of it. It's never – I mean, I guess there are sometimes there, you see the extremes, but it's not the extreme. It's just the slow and steady over the course of, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Well, you know, incremental growth, and I love talking about that. I mean, all these people want – to be the mega multimillionaire tomorrow and they don't realize that sure you can get there just go through the grind go through the stuff yeah and i think that you know on that one of the things i've learned over the years because i used to have a saying i had some some goals and some benchmarks i wanted to get to as a company and then i realized along the way for us to do that we would no longer be us now i'm not saying we, we might not go for that again, but I know what our revenue is. I know, you know, I, I kind of have an idea. And then if I did a little multiplier on what kind of revenue that would bring, it's like, okay, the overhead expense to kind of get there, you'd probably have to go out and get some private equity money. And, you know, a lot of people, well, it's like these big companies, it's not like me or you or my mm-hmm. dad or whatever. So funny, they went out and they got private equity and then they have other interest. And so you talk about being a multimillionaire in that sense quickly, you're going to have to go get some funding. And for me, that's really not of interest. I don't need some guy from Harvard trying to tell me how to do it for some BE firm. That, that's just not of interest. Yeah. That might be your thing. It's not mine. Right. Yeah. And you listen to guys from Gary Vee from time to time. I can only stun with some of the stuff for so long. But, you know, <laughs> one of the things he does talk about that I totally understand is, you know, he's an 800 person company right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, up to employees 200, he knew everybody on a first name basis. Mm-hmm. But then when it really ramped and took off, you know, he's got 600 people in his company. He's never met. Right. You know, and it's an interesting perspective. I've never actually heard anybody put it out there that, you know, you'd lose, you know, your company or not lose your company, but you lose the culture. And his company, I believe, is 25% owned by the Miami Dolphins owner as well. Yes. Yeah. And he came from a very successful wine business. So that's the thing I think we kind of lost is I used to say this before Trump was president, but now that's so polarizing. I don't use that analogy. But, you know, back when it was Trump or Gates or Jobs, I used to say, hey, we always look at these guys and we think that they're the man. Well, okay, they are the man, but they have a lot of help and team and they're drawing from it. And even Gary Vee, you know, you know, it's so all these people. So anyone who's successful. You know, like you were saying a minute ago, you have to have people that are helping you, that are working with you. And it's never one man might can cast a vision. One man might have the conquer mentality. But 
you can only do so much by yourself. And then if you say you really want to get to that Gary Vee level or Gates level or wherever, you have to go get outside funding unless yeah. you just somehow have a really rich family, which, you know, we're not that kind of <laughs> family. <laughs> well, if you are, are you adopting? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think people have – this is a really cool point. $100,000 a year is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. You know, and I think people are hung up on this rock and roller lifestyle of the big cars, the big houses. You know, dude, mm-hmm. you can live really good in life off a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And it's not as hard to make a hundred thousand as you might think it is. Right. But I'm not saying it's easy, but it's also that's a realistic goal that if you have a little bit of drive, you can probably make a hundred thousand a year. Right. And for a lot of people, what they believe that million dollars or whatever else will do for them, mm-hmm. they'll find that happiness. That it, and money's not going to buy you happiness, but being broke right. will sure make you miserable. You know, exactly but right. that, that 100,000, you know, plus a year will buy them a lot of times the freedom they're looking for if they live within realistic means. Which no, no. Well, that's that's a separate issue altogether. But no. yeah, you're right. I think the hundred K is a. I think it's a good benchmark. I mean, if you're New York City, I don't know. I know the cost yeah, of living there is a lot more expensive. But you know, or Los Angeles. But you're you're in flyover country like I am. You know, hundred K goes a long way, and it can get you taken care of for sure. Yeah, that's absolutely absolutely. So you were doing a, a lot of cool things, man. You got a company that, with the help of your father, have mm-hmm. you know built, mm-hmm. done well. You got some cool projects coming up. Mm-hmm. Where do you think all this stuff's gonna take you? I mean, are you gonna be the next? Oh, what's the name of the show? Oh, what's the gold mining show on TV? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Todd Hoffman. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. Are you gonna be the next Todd Hoffman and you know start a TV series or what are you gonna do? You know, I I don't I don't have any desires to start a TV show, uh, but if, if the if the price is right, obviously. <laughs> but you know, really for me, it's about so I've got uh, three kids with one on the way, ten, eight, and two, and or ten, eight, and three. She just turned three. And so, you know, for me, it's about looking ahead, saying, okay, I've got uh, a son, and it's about to be three dollars, three dollars, two dollars right now. And how do I set up these next ten years where my son, if he wants to come work for dad, those opportunities are there. If he doesn't want to come do what I do, I want to have other things. Maybe it's rental property. Maybe it's, you know, something. Because one of the things I think that young men struggle with now is we see a lot of young men who come out and they have so many options that it's kind of like going to that restaurant for the first time, mm. and the menu is like six pages long. And you're like, I don't know. Do I want a steak? Do I want a hamburger? I like chicken. And people say that, you know, this idea, well, do what you like. Well, I like doing a lot of things. For me, that's a dangerous deal. I manage fighters. I have boxers and MMA fighters I manage. I like doing that. I like doing a lot of things. I like podcasting. You know, so for telling me, do what you like to do, well, I love a lot of things. So I, I want to hopefully with my son uh, bring him up where he understands, hey, there is a good job here for you. And if you don't want to do that, then you need to really push back and say no instead of saying, hey, do what you want to and maybe you can work for me. So kind of reverse the model. Say this is what you're going to do. If you want to be a doctor, then this same way will be you want to go be a doctor, but let's not waste a lot of time trying to figure it out. So try to maybe gear his mind a little bit differently. So I'm really working on that and having opportunities for him so that and him and, and my daughters and their husbands so that they can be in a, in a good spot so where that they can work and do whatever they need to do. You know, that's awesome. I don't have kids, so take my advice with a grain of salt. But what I often see a lot of parents do is they take away the learning experiences. I've 
coached a lot of clients over the years that are like, I just don't want my kids to go through what I went through. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. man, all that stuff you went through shaped you into who you are. Mm -hmm. So however you bring up your kids and once again, you're taking advice from a guy who doesn't have kids, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's make sure you give them the opportunities. Right. So what I'm saying is is more of, hey, daddy wants you to come work for him, son. And put that in his mindset that that's where he's, that's where he's at, that's where he's welcome. And then, you know, he's 10, he's about to be 11. You know, when he's 15, 16, 17, at that point, that's kind of been what I've talked to him about. And then at that point, say, is this what you want to do? And if it's not what he wants to do, that's fine, but we need to have a strong path forward. I don't, I don't want him to waste his 20s figuring it out. Figuring it out with $100,000 in college student loan debt. Right. Well, you know, dude, at 11 years old, he can be throwing hay bales. I was talking about <laughs> Put his butt to work. <laughs> well, we homeschool as well, so I'm going to let him, as he gets a little bit older, start experiencing more business stuff with me so he can kind of get, you know, I don't have a college degree. That's one thing I left that earlier. That, that kind of goes with that self-validation thing. I don't have a college degree, so I'm not against them. I just, I think that, you know, depending on who you are, where there's value. But I, I really want Drew over the next three to five, seven years to kind of understand at least business and so you can have an idea of what business is like because most of us unless you're a doctor a lawyer an engineer very specific trade we're just in business on some level marketing sales it whatever that's awesome so you also have a pretty badass you know podcast where you've got a lot of things going on tell us a little bit about the podcast Yep, so I have two going right now, but the top one is the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, aptly named, obviously. And so it's going well. We're in the top, depending on where you catch it at, but it's in the top 200 of the business news, which that's a really big deal for us. We're really excited. Okay, uh, i got to ask, what the hell do you talk about on an oil and gas podcast that's got that much attention? I'm just that good. No. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's that ego we're talking about. <laughs> okay, so you know, I'm an I'm an oil and gas. I'm on the vendor side of the business, and so what we do is essentially me and a co-host we break down the news of the week and just kind of you know we're reading it from a business vendor side, which is a lot of our listeners. We do have some operators and some companies, but people in the business, oil and gas, first off, is kind of unless you're in it, you don't really realize how vast it is and how separate you are from other parts. So if you're in midstream, you're not really knowing what's going on upstream or vice versa or downstream. And so we just kind of hit the news, the headlines every week. There's so much going on. We have guests that come on. And our goal essentially is when it's just me and Josh, on my co-host on there, is just to kind of hit the news so you don't have to read all the headlines, right? And then we bring on guests that talk about different things going on in the industry. Again, the industry is so big, so large, so huge that there's really never – especially right now, a shortage of topics. And then I have the Energy Week podcast, which deals with geopolitical issues from an energy standpoint. Well, as you can imagine, there's something always going on geopolitical with the Iran sanctions or North Korea or Saudi Arabia. And then my co-host on that wrote a book called Saudi Inc. So she's kind of the leading authority on Saudi Arabia. And so we have a lot of fun with that one as well. That's awesome. Both of those are not things I would definitely tie into. So you've got a very niche market on both those. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. But 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 that's I tell people, and you know, I'm just going to geek out on podcasting for a second. This is why I love podcasting. Mm-hmm. And I think more people should get into it because no matter what your thing is, whatever you geek out about, yep. there is an audience that wants to hear your message. 
That's yeah. exactly right. People will say, well, what's the value of your podcast? I'm like, well, I'm talking to you. I always kind of joke that. I mean, I, most people I talk to, I've met through the podcast, yeah. and I've met a lot of influential people and a lot of common people, and, and, and they become friends. We've had good you know, relationships, and I have people, I'm like, why don't you come on the show? Like, ah, it's not, worth my, well, not, not really worth my time. I'm like, you do realize that you reached out to me because you heard me on my podcast, and you wanted to have lunch. Right. Like, <laughs> And they're like, oh, yeah, this is just funny because once you start to be friends with them, they kind of forget about the podcast stuff. But I agree. There should be more podcasts. I'm a free market capitalist, so all the podcasts in the world, let them compete, and it's fine with me. To that point, I love your lunch story because I tell everybody, I'm like, this is the best networking tool I've ever had in my life. Easily. Dude, you, it, it's such a different thing. I mean I was a sales trainer for the last you know seven years before I started my own company. And, dude, I'd walk up to somebody and say I'm a sales trainer. They looked at me like I had two heads, but I walk up yeah. and say I'm a podcaster, and right. it's like, what? You know, it's, right. <laughs> it's wild. So, so well, brother, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story with us. It's been a fun ride and a fun journey with you. Here's how I like to wrap up every show, and I do stump some people with this, so, so be forewarned. So if you were to leave my audience with a quote, a saying, a phrase, a mantra, any of those type of things, you know, that they could take with them on their journey, what would be that quote you would say – Hey, remember this. Okay, so I'm not big on quotes, but I do have one that I use as kind of like a joke, but I'm, I'm kind of joking, but I'm serious. And it's from Mike Tyson, and you can just Google Mike Tyson and put, no, I'm Alexander. And he goes on this big riff about is before he fought Lennox Lewis, and he says, Lennox thinks he's a conqueror, something like that. Lennox thinks he's Alexander. He goes, no, I'm Alexander. And I've always just loved that. That's when he says my defense is impregnable and all that stuff. I've always loved that quote because Tyson – Obviously gets destroyed the Lewis fight, but it's like, hey, this guy thinks he's a conqueror. No, I'm the real conqueror here. So th that's kind of I don't really I don't do motivational quotes or things, but that it is has always stuck out with me. So I, I use Mike Tyson. No, I'm Alexander, and uh, you'll get I'm, I did it just to see you'll see a crazy interview, best you know Tyson speech. So it's you can look that up. I just got it pictured in my head in Tyson's voice, which makes it even better. Yeah, so. that's, it's even better. <laughs> he says all kinds of crazy stuff in that in that little. It's, he goes on like a rant. It's about a minute long. And it's full of just gems. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Ryan, brother, I really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your journey with us, man. It's been a hell of a ride. Hey, thanks for having me. And let me just say this. I'm going to go leave a rating review on this podcast. We were talking about this offline. Ratings reviews are super important. So if you listen to this podcast and you appreciate what this man does, go leave him a rating review because it helps the show out. And while you're there, Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, we're a little picky. We only take five-star ratings and reviews. So go ahead and leave us one there, too. <laughs> well played, brother. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Donnie's Success Champions podcast. If you'd like to hear more about our current guest today, or if you'd like to hear stories from our other guests on the show, come hang out with us on our website at successchampspodcast.com. I really appreciate you tuning in. If you need to reach out to me for any reason, you can catch me at Donnie at DonnieBovine.com. Kevin and I have a lot of fun each week recording these episodes and sharing our best thoughts and ideas with you all. 
Man, we're just proud to to have you guys as listeners always tuning in. And we really appreciate the messages. We get the DMs, emails, and the likes from you guys with questions and ideas for future shows. And that just means the world to us. We really are changing how the world networks. We've poured our heart and soul into Success Champions Networking, and it continues to grow. So if you haven't checked out a chapter and you're looking for a mastermind group of pure, absolute badasses that understand that giving introductions are way more powerful than referrals, go to successchampionnetworking.com and request a visit. And thanks for being you. Thanks for being a champion of your success because that's what it means to be a success champion.